morning. Christians won everything. That's a uh, direct quote from a stand-up comedian. He is not himself a Christian, but he has this great little bit on religion. And he talks about how he doesn't raise his kids religious, but it's hard to teach them the difference between good and evil when you don't do that. He doesn't want to wake up on Sunday morning, so he's not going to bother with that. But then he says, speaking to presumably a non-Christian audience, Christians won everything. And he says, you know how he knows? I'll ask you one question. What year is it? And then he goes on and, and uh, just describes, do we realize what, how crazy it is that we call it the year 2019? That literally what happened was at some point after Jesus, we went back and said to eventually the whole world, you guys are going to start counting your entire life one, two, three, four, around the world, no matter who you are, you're going to count your years because of Jesus. And it's not like in the year three, people were walking around saying what year it is, and they said year three, and somebody said, but I'm 28, how does that work? And no, remember, you were born when we were counting backwards. And so not only do we make people start counting at Jesus, we said everyone before Jesus, the vast majority of history, you're going to count backwards. Man, that would have been stressful, right, to live when you're counting backwards. What year is it next you're going down? He, he obviously is, is being tongue-in-cheek, but I think he has an incredible, incredible insight. And on a lesser scale, it does seem like every generation has a certain era-defining moment. So my generation is like 9-11. Things changed after 9-11. And previous generation, it's like the JFK assassination or the landing on the moon. But usually what happens with each era-defining moment is that there arises some conspiracy theorists. And so you can be a conspiracy theorist and say that 9-11 was just a government hoax to justify a war or whatever, but if you go to the airport and try to get on a flight and don't submit to the security that has exploded because of 9-11, you will have a rude awakening, right? You're going to face the reality that 9-11, in fact, did happen, and it changed the world in a global way. That is something of what we are told in our Hebrews passage of what has happened in Christ. Reality itself has changed. Time itself has changed. And to not realize that, to act as if Jesus has not come and done what Scripture said he has done, is to, in effect, be a conspiracy theorist saying, no, no, they didn't really land on the moon. It's just a hoax. Let's live as if it didn't happen. We are told that Christ came at the end of the age, to deal with sin. What would it mean if we really believe that? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this day. We praise you for the day of Jesus' resurrection when you ushered in an entirely new age. Give us understanding and wisdom into what that means. Give us 
and openness of heart. Lord, I pray that your word, by the power of your spirit, would speak to the brokenhearted, those who need comfort, to the contrite in spirit. I pray that you would challenge the hard-hearted and stubborn. I pray that you would give us the comfort that only the gospel of grace can give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to think in terms of this new reality. And uh, the first two points are really thinking as far as time. The first one being the new reality means a BC mindset is crazy. To live as if you lived before Christ is crazy. Is to deny reality as a conspiracy theorist. Where do I see that in the passage? Well, first, uh, it's very clear, and this is a lot going on a lot in Hebrews, there is an insufficiency in the Old Testament system. And so the book of Hebrews is primarily writing to Jewish Christians, so folks who would have been raised Jewish but have joined the church, converted to Christ, but they are tempted to fall back into Judaism, so that to, basically to avoid the awkwardness and probably the coming persecution with the Christian religion. It was just safer, because Judaism seemed more ancient and more legit in the ancient world to be Jewish. And he's saying over and over, guys, to go back to the Old Testament system, to go back and live in a B.C. mindset is silly. So verse 13, we see one aspect of it. He describes the uh, sacrifices done there with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, the blood of goats and bulls. It had a certain purpose, and it set apart a people of God for worship. It physically set them apart, put them in a physical land, but he is saying that was only physical. It wasn't meant to be the end-all, be-all. In the same way, we have this amazing verse in verse 15, the blood of Jesus actually redeems those who were under the Old Testament system. Did you catch that? He redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so you may ask, so the people before Jesus, how, how were they saved? Well, they were saved in their faith of a promised Messiah. And so the sacrifices that they would go through in such elaborate detail was meant to point them not just to the physical set-apartness that they are holy unto God, but to point them to the full Savior, the complete spiritual Savior that was to come, the Savior of sinners, Jesus. It is meant to be provisionary. So the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, it had a purpose, and its ultimate purpose, we can't fully understand the Old Testament, without Jesus. It's meant to be a sign. He's saying it was meant to have a time limit. There was a term limit on it. It was pointing, and in the start of chapter 10, he says it was not able to make perfect those who worship. So it had a job, but it didn't have the best job. It didn't have the highest job. It wasn't complete until Jesus. And then in verse 23, we have this important description where he says, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So that word copies, pattern, uh, we're told in Colossians that it's compared to a shadow versus a substance. What was going on before Jesus was that it was patterning after the heavenly worship. 
And so Moses is actually told, make sure when you are constructing the tabernacle to be very detailed and clear in following after the pattern that was given to you on the mountain because it's patterned after heaven. It's not the real thing. It's a copy. It's a shadow to the substance. It's a copy to the real thing. And so it's as if this whole Old Testament system was preparing the people of God, preparing the whole world for Jesus. Listen to the way Galatians 4 puts it. This is where Paul is speaking. He says, I mean that the heir, meaning the one who's going to inherit salvation, which we were told in our passage that says, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, so he's going to inherit everything, but he's still a child, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's what it was like under the law. It, it, is, it was as if you were sort of under a babysitter until they were, God was to bring them to maturity. In the same way, we also, when we were children, Galatians 4 goes on, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So he describes Christ coming as the people of God being brought to maturity. It's like the full revelation of God and the full revelation of what God's people are meant to be. And now I realize that the struggle we have is not falling back into the Old Testament sacrificial system since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so nobody's really doing that. But the idea that the BC mindset is crazy, in the same way that it would have been crazy for them to go back into the Jewish mindset, it is crazy for us to try to deal with our sin in any other way. So what are the ways that we try to deal with our sin apart from Jesus? Apart from realizing what Jesus has come? Do we minimize it? Do we try to make it seem as if it's not that big of a deal? Do we blame shift? You know, we're not, gonna, we're not willing to take responsibility, so we're going to make excuses. Maybe we compare our sin to others. At least I'm not as bad as these other folks. Right? Maybe we defend it. I think that's one that I do a lot. We defend it. We justify it, pretending that it's not sin at all. No. I am in the right. Even though, really, deep down, I know I'm not. Maybe we sort of hide it or fake it or deny that we even did it at all. Where, where, what is one of those that you do the most, do you think? Because I think the ultimate reason that we are tempted to do that is because we're not quite convinced that Jesus dealt with our sin. So we have to deal with it some other way. And we've got to hide it somewhere not realizing that we have a place to bring it in Jesus. And so it's not surprising that the world doesn't want to take, talk about sin. Why would you want to talk about sin if you don't have anything, any solution to it? Why would you want to talk about the fact that you were born with a rebellious nature against God if that was where you thought you were going to be left? Of course the world doesn't want to talk about it. But a Christian... And to act like 
our sin hasn't been dealt with is to act like that conspiracy theorist. It's like to deny the Holocaust. No, no, it didn't really happen. We don't have any reasons to do that anymore. So take, take the time sometime. Maybe it's right now. Maybe it's later today. Connect the dots in your own mind and heart between your reaction to your own sin and how that, uh, what does that say about your trust in Jesus' death? Maybe you need to write them down. Maybe you need to confess them out loud to a brother or sister in Christ. Because when we name it, that will actually help us take responsibility and then see that Jesus is sufficient. And so if the BC mindset is crazy, the second point is simply, new, this new reality means that the AD mindset is the only way to live. That is living in step with the reality of the universe. Have you ever thought about that way? The king of the world is Jesus. And it's not dependent on our vote and on our faith. It's not going to change. And so to live in step with the reality of the universe is to trust that Jesus' love is sufficient. So just to remind us in verse 24, our passage says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, but then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many. And then we'll come later to the second half. Once for all, at the end of the ages, sin has been dealt with. The past tense in the book of Hebrews is amazing. What has already been completed. We don't have to wait for the future. We don't have to wonder, what's God going to do with my sin this time? It's no longer a threat to condemn us in the presence of the holy God because of Jesus' blood. And now there's a lot of talk about um, blood in this passage. And I think it is important for us to realize that we live in a culture that is very, very sanitized. Meaning, unless you're basically in like the medical field, you are totally hidden and kept from witnessing blood and death. And that is really unique in the history of the world. That every other culture, as far as I'm aware of, had blood and death just much more in their everyday life. But we try to hide it as if it doesn't exist. This passage is helpful to remind us that there's so much blood involved because sin is worthy of death. Sin is worthy of death. And so, if God is really going to deal with us, and if he's really going to give us new life, blood needs to be involved. There needs to be a life for life. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't hide from that either. We shouldn't shy away from that as if that's too gruesome. Because we should want God to be gruesome. We should want him to be violent in this way. Because this is how he's going to deal with the real 
sin of our lives and our world. He's not just going to be dealing with the respectable sins. He's going to be dealing with the rough and tumble and dirty and gruesome issues of the world. That's what we should want. So we should appreciate, and if we're reading through the Old Testament, you're seeing all this blood, let that point you to the severity of rebellion against God, to how serious it is that it requires blood, and then to fully deal with it, it required the blood of the eternal, perfect, innocent second person of the Trinity, Jesus. That's how severe it is. The blood of the Old Testament, which seemed like it would be, I mean, it would be hard to be a priest in the Old Testament, right? You have to have a, a, a thick stomach. There's just blood everywhere. But that has been dealt with. So Jesus doesn't have to deal with sin anymore. At the start of verse 28, he's saying, guys, a person only dies once. When he died, he dealt with sin. Past tense. And so, when he institutes the meal that we will take, in Mark 14, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's quoting Exodus 24, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Instead of saying, this is the blood of the covenant, when, as Moses does, when he sprinkles the temple, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Wow. That should give us a huge sense of awe and thankfulness that the Christian life is one that stands after sin has been dealt with. Hell, we are told, is the thing that has gates. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates are for defense. We're on the offense. Do you get that? The power of the Christian that can stand and say, oh, sin has been dealt with. We are not. We may feel like it. We feel like this crazy little minority in New England. We are not the conspiracy theorists. It's, a, it, it's someone who doesn't realize the true reality. They're the conspiracy theorists because they don't see, even though they call it the year 2019, they don't see what has changed. Is that your experience of the Christian life? That your fight against sin, now we know, of course, that sin is still around, it's still indwelling in us, Christian or non-Christian, we still live under the effects of it in this broken world. But our fight is a fight against a losing enemy. We have been seeing the future of this battle, and the enemy will lose. That is our fight. And so, Paul can say we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. More than conquerors. Not just conquerors. More, it, it, I don't quite get it. It seems like he's just out of ways to put it. It's just more than conquerors. Athanasius, the great uh, early church father, uh, described or compared uh, our treatment or our relationship to sin and death as we are walking by a tyrant that we once feared who is now in a cage. And we can mock him and laugh at him. That's the power of a Christian. That there is laughing and mocking 
in the Bible against God's will. You get that? Now, now we live in, a set, in an age where it's the spiritual enemies, right? We're not mocking people. But we should have a sense of pity, like, wow, you are walking out of step with the reality of the universe. And Athanasius, actually, when he uses that comparison, it's in a longer context where he's talking about the proof of the resurrection. And one of the proofs he offers is, look at all of these people around who are Christians now who were low and feeble and feared everything. Look at the power that they have now in their life that they're willing to face death just to say, Jesus is Lord. How could that not be real? That's, his, that's one of his proofs. Because they face death as if it's just this tyrant who now is in a cage. I love that picture of the power of a Christian. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The other um, amazing point here, and just I've already hinted at it, but just to make it clear, that phrase, once for all, at the end of the ages. That would be a good like mantra in your prayer, just once for all, at the end of the ages. But that word end doesn't really help us in English. It's better, it's a, it's a, it's a little tricky of a word to translate, but it's more like the culmination of the ages. The consummation of the ages. The climax, the universal hinge. As Paul says in, in Galatians 4, the fullness of time. Jesus' coming changed time itself. It's as if the end of time entered the middle of time so that we could live for all time. That's what happened to Jesus. The end of time, the future, the judgment that everyone deserves out of our rebellion against God. The end of time, we were supposed to face judgment day on our own, but we don't have to because Jesus, the end of time has entered the middle of time so that we can live for all. He changed. Reality, the comedian is right. But it's not that Christians want everything, it's that Jesus won everything. And that's one great thing. So every time you write 2019, remember, you're writing, oh, this is, this is Jesus plus 2019. My license expires in Jesus plus 2020 years, four months, three days. My birthday is that in relation to Jesus. It's Anno Domini, right? The year of the Lord. Or the common era. Your sin has been dealt with. Is that your sort of picture of Christ that all of history? It's a crazy statement, I realize but I don't know how to read the, the Bible without saying this. All of history stands in relationship to him. Everything that came before him was insufficient. Everything that comes after him has to relate to him if it's going to be the full reality of the universe. Man. So our passage also draws two conclusions for us. What is this new reality mean more specifically. One is that we can draw near in Christ. Verse 14, which I won't spend a lot of time on because it, it came up also in the previous sermon in Hebrews, but verse 14, just to remind you, gives amazing promise. 
the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Your conscience now, in light of this new reality, has been purified. So, you may have had a guilty conscience, but you don't have to anymore. So it's not that we play fast and loose with sin. Remember, it's bloody and we take it seriously. It's that it's really been purified by the blood of the eternal Son. And so, it's not that we're coming to God lightly. It's that we're coming to God realizing that our sin has really been dealt with. So we can draw near. We can come into his presence. But then in 23 and 24, um, you may have been a little puzzled trying to figure out what it said. So 23 reads, thus it was necessary for the copies, talking about the Old Testament temple, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the blood of the goats and all that stuff, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What is he saying? The heavenly things themselves. Heaven had to be cleansed? Had to be purified? That seems like a weird idea. And sometimes scholars aren't quite sure what to do with it. It's kind of amazing, though, what he's actually saying. Why does heaven have to be purified? Because we're going there. And not just we will go there, we're there, in a sense. We're there by faith. That's why he says it. Because he's bringing us there to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's got us there with him. So in order for that to happen, heaven has to be purified. You see that? I mean, just it was perfect how Jeff introduced the service of the, the heaven meets earth. I mean, it's more than just a banner. This is what we have in Scripture. And not just in one verse in the book of Hebrews. It's all over. So in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, there's a prayer. And Paul sort of loses himself when he says, praying by the power of Christ, who has been seated and raised with him above every ruler and authority in heaven. He's been seated as the king of kings. That's Ephesians 1. Five verses later, he's now talking about us, and he's saying, you guys... You were like the walking dead, like zombies following the prince of the power of the air, following the devil. You were like zombies, but now you have been raised and seated with him. He says the same thing, the same words he uses to apply to us in the past tense as he applies to Jesus. Colossians 3. If you have been raised, set your minds on things that are above. If you, if you have been raised, it's already true. Writing to Christians who struggle with sin, fix your eyes on Jesus because your old life has passed away and your new life is hidden with Christ in God. That's why. Our treasure, our heart, our identity is in heaven now. So it doesn't make any sense to want the things of the world. They should lose their sparkle. In Romans 6, the way he answers that perennial Christian question, if forgiveness is just going to come, why don't I just sin more so I can see more of God's forgiveness? He says, you don't know who you are. You don't realize what you're asking. 
You have been baptized into Christ. You are a new person now. You have no reason to want sin. He's taken out the motivation right at the root and said, you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is who you are now. Jesus has been raised from the dead bodily. You have been raised from the dead spiritually, and you await the bodily. What an amazing, an amazing privilege. And how sad and ridiculous it would be, right, to ignore it, to act as if it didn't happen. Do you take advantage of this? The means of grace that we are told we have through the word, through prayer, through the church, these are meant to be means, literally the avenues, the vessels through which we receive grace, through which we draw near to Christ. So this, according to Hebrews, is the natural conclusion of the new reality. Just like after 9-11, the airport security lines quadrupled, because that's what happens after something like that happens. After Jesus, the new reality means you can come into the presence of God, of the holy, consuming fire God. And yet we come, as I mentioned, we come by faith, not by sight. So the other conclusion and the way the passage ends is talking about waiting. So the new reality means we draw near, but we draw near and wait. And what does that mean? So the kingdom of God, the, um, the temple, if you will, will be physical again. It's as if it was physical with Israel. It's physical in the body of Jesus right now, and it's going to be physical, but not until Jesus returns. The promised land, Eden, it is going to be physical, new heavens, new earth, globalized, but not yet. And so we experience it only now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so verse 27 in our passage says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He doesn't have to deal with sin anymore. He's already judged it in himself, so it wouldn't make sense for him to deal with sin again. So now when he comes, he's going to offer the full salvation. We've been raised now spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we long, as Romans 8 says, creation itself is groaning for the full redemption of our bodies, for the full redemption of the earth. So now is the time that we wait for that. It frames our life. And so 2 Peter describes it as this time where the Lord is patient. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So now it's like this is an era of repentance. In Philippians 3, Paul describes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We're awaiting. We're awaiting that. You get a sense we're, we're waiting for heaven to come to earth fully. 
And then Paul goes on to say, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. So the time of waiting is that stand firm. And so what does this do to us if this is the time where we eagerly wait? Well, I think it does actually encourage us to not be surprised at sin. We know it's not heaven yet. We know that the incredible riches of his grace have been displayed on Christ and we are seated in heaven with him by faith now. But he hasn't fully wiped all the sin out because there's still time to repent. So our expectations ought to be just proper to the reality that we live in, which is sin no longer condemns us. It has been forgiven and dealt with once for all but we still have to fight against it. It is still a losing enemy. We're still a little afraid. Walking by that tyrant in a cage, his face still freaks us out. That's kind of what it's like. And so, I think that helps us with our expectations. It relativizes the hope of heaven, the utopian dream that we all want in our life right now. And it also means that when we struggle with sin or when we encounter the sin in the world, we're not brought to despair. It sort of helps us in those two ways. We're not brought to despair because we know Jesus has been raised. Sin didn't win. Sin had a shot. Jesus on the cross. That was Satan's chance. And he lost. He thought he was winning, but he lost. And notice it also gives us this incredible assurance that we know the future. That just as Jesus has died and been raised, we know what the future holds. We know the destiny of the universe. And that should affect us, right? Our anxiety, our worry about the future, our expectations that are placed in it. Not that we know everything about the future. It's not comprehension. We do have this assurance. Assurance that Jesus is king. Over and over in the book of Hebrews, he has been enthroned. He has ascended, which means he's been exalted. And he has dealt with sin, bore it on his own body, bore it himself, once for all, at the culmination of of the entire world, the culmination of all ages happened in Jesus. And he is now enthroned, waiting for all his people to draw near, to repent, to submit to him, to give him the glory he deserves that he already has in heaven. That's the time that we live in. So, if you don't know that yet, if you don't know Jesus Realize what is at stake. What is at stake is that your sin is going to destroy you. It may already have begun, that destruction. It may already have started. And it will finish the job. Because our only hope is in Christ. And if you do know Jesus, draw near. Pray for this assurance. Pray for this deeper sense that every time I write 2019, I'm going to realize reality has changed. And I know the future because my sin has been dealt with in Jesus' name.
God, it's amazing that we can pray to you that Jesus, the God-man, the human body, is appearing in the presence of you right now on our behalf, that we can draw near, that we can come to you, our refuge and strength, our joy and our glory, our salvation. Father, give us that faith. I pray for anyone in here, Lord, who continues to live according to that BC mindset, Lord, open their hearts, open their minds to see the riches of your grace that you have accomplished in Jesus, that when you do return, we may exalt you and look forward to that full redemption of our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.